Well, we are in week two of a series simply entitled Trinity. And since we started last week, and those of you that weren't able to be here last weekend because you slept in, no guilt, um, but uh, we kind of laid the foundation for the whole series. And you may want to go back and kind of reference what we talked about last week so this week makes sense. But since we started last week, I've been inundated with two questions. Question number one is, Grant, what is the funky symbol hanging behind your head? And question number two, Pastor Grant, have you read The Shack? All right, let me answer those two questions. The symbol behind me has nothing to do with Star Trek. In fact, it is a symbol that was commissioned by the early Cappadocian church fathers that tried to summarize and symbolize the Trinity. That symbol hanging behind me does have some pagan roots to it because the early church loved to take things that the devil had stolen, redeem them, and stamp Jesus on top of it, and where you do exactly the same thing. So it's a symbol of the Trinity. That's why it's hanging so prominently in our church right now. The second question, Grant, have you read The Shack? How many of you know what I'm talking about just by saying the name of the book? Well, about a half of you. Okay. Yes, I read The Shack. All right. It's a book about the Trinity, sort of. I enjoyed the book, but I'm going to throw a huge caution to those of you that read that book. And I'm going to say this boldly. You do not create theology out of a human novel. We get an understanding of God from the book that God wrote, okay? So I'm not talking smack about the shack. All I'm saying is this. It's a fictional novel, not the holy inspired word of God, which is our final and outright authority at Christ the King. Just so you know at CTK, we are Bible geeks proudly at Christ the King, all right? So you can take that, and my encouragement to you is start with the Bible and then work your way out, okay? Last week we began a series on the Trinity, and my encouragement to you was to remember that this is a profound mystery. You can't figure it out entirely because it's God. And God is too big for human comprehension. Basically, if you can fully comprehend it, it's not God. All right? You can wrap your brain around it, but, or you can't wrap your brain around it, but we are going to attempt to actually try and wrap our hearts around this. So for review, for those of you that were not here and for those that were at Christ the King, because the Bible says so, here's what we believe. We believe that there is one God creator of all things, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So a little test. How many gods do we believe in? Expressed as how many persons? And their names are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right. You just blessed my heart by knowing that. That was awesome. All right. Last week, I gave you a bunch of scripture. I'm going to add some more this week. Because we are uh, truly going to spend a lot of time in Scripture. Paul, the greatest pastor of all of history and the first missionary, said this. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There are lots of gods, little g, gods, in our world today. People devote massive amounts of time and attention and effort, which is another word for worship, towards the small g gods of our world today, like celebrities and and vehicles and technological communication schools and status and power, all of which the God of the universe, God Almighty says, to remind us, 
that he is God and they are not. I turned on my television the other day and there was a Jonas Brothers concert on television. How many of you know who the Jonas Brothers are? The rest of you don't, okay? Anyway, there's this arena full of screaming, worshiping, Middle school girls, some of them are falling on the ground, laying prostrate in front of these small musicians wearing very tight jeans, okay? And, and I'm thinking, if God was in that arena at that time, I wonder if he would say to them, you need to understand something. Don't worship the Jonas Brothers. Worship the God who made the skinny jean musicians that are playing up front, all right? I'm not saying you can't like the Jonas Brothers, but you should not be worshiping small musicians in tight jeans. It's just wrong in so many ways. I'm going to get in so much trouble this week. I just know I am. I'm feeling it. And how the Jonas Brothers got into my message, I have no idea. And how we're going to save this moment, I don't know. But there's one God, all right, who exists as three persons. And that's why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now you'll notice Jesus doesn't say my father and I are identical. He says we're one. We have the same essence. I'd like to show you a chart that we're, hopefully will bring some clarity to this. Last week I said God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. And that's true. But here's where it gets a little thick and we're going to have to really start thinking. While God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. There's one God, but He exists as three persons. The Father did not hang on the cross and die. Jesus did. Jesus was not sent as a comforter to encourage the believer. That's the Holy Spirit. God is not a God who just switches roles and, and dances between some kind of, uh, of cosmic mask. In fact, you have to be careful with looking at God as this cosmic role player who just jumps all over the place because actually, if you believe that, you believe a heresy called modalism. God's not a role player. He's one God who exists as three persons. Last week, I got a great email from a small group and they said, you know, we spent an hour and a half unpacking all of our understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and they wanted to know whether or not their response was appropriate. They said, at the end of 90 minutes, we all just kind of sat there and somebody said, Wow. I said, that's an awesome response. That's an amazing response to something that you can't really wrap your brain around. There are two words that we must understand if we're to fully appreciate the beauty of the Trinity. And the words are this. The words are community and unity. We often get stuck in the wrong words when we're trying to understand the Trinity. We often get stuck in the words one and three. Here's some better words to get stuck on. Community and unity. The Trinity is a perfect community. The Trinity works in unity, in perfection, always. You know, you need to know this. The Son is never jealous of the Father because the Father gets more press time in Scripture, all right? The Holy Spirit doesn't sit and sulk in the corner because Jesus gets lots of attention at Christmas and Easter, all right? It doesn't work that way. No, they exist perfectly in unity and community. And we have a hard time understanding this because the little triangle that we live in, it doesn't live in perfect community and unity, does it? I mean, think about your little family triangle. Father, mother, children, right? 
That's kind of a little triangle that we do our existence in. And then I want you to take that little triangle and put it in the middle of your worst family vacation ever. And and just let it sit there for a second. I mean, it's supposed to be a perfect little community until you take that perfect community that's supposed to live in unity and you put it in Disneyland. The happiest place on earth, right? And in that little community, just one person decides to cop an attitude in the middle of your, of your perfect family vacation that you've spent 27 years saving up for. And all of a sudden, you're not in the magic kingdom anymore. You're in an evil kingdom. And it's a bad place. And it ends with one of the parents with a kid pressed up against the wall saying bad things like, look, kid, you need to understand something. This is a perfect vacation and you're going to enjoy yourself. So I want you to shut your mouth and enjoy your $24 hot dog. And if you don't, I'm going to kill the mouse. Some people are going, that's not my family. Yeah, you're lying, right? (laughs) See, we don't have a box for perfect community and unity. And yet that's exactly what the Trinity is. Let me show it to you in action. Here's a biblical picture of the three persons of the Trinity working in unity and community to accomplish the will of God, okay? I'm gonna read to you some sections from Ephesians chapter one. We're gonna go from verses three to 14. For those of you that are Bible geeks like I am, I want you to understand something. This 11 verse section is one sentence in Greek. If you read it properly, you're not even supposed to take a breath all the way through the 11 verses, all right? But let's just read this together. Ephesians 1, we're gonna start at verse three. Bible says this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. If you, let's just stop there for a second. If you go through that first little section, it tells us what God the Father is doing. Let me point them out to you. God the Father, he blesses, he chooses, and he adopts. In just a couple of verses, it says that's what God the Father is up to. Blessing people, choosing people to come into his family and then adopting them as full sons and daughters into his family. Okay, that's what the Father's doing. Now let's keep going because the verses go on and it says this, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And who's the one that he loves? Jesus, all right? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So the father is blessing, choosing and adopting. Then God the son steps in and this is what he does. He redeems. He forgives. And the Bible uses a word we don't use very often. Lavishes. You know what it means? It means he loves extravagantly. He just pours out love on people that don't deserve it but God just pours it out anyway. We're not done yet. In verses 13 and 14, same little chunk, it says this, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So the father's doing his thing, the son's doing his thing, and then the Holy Spirit steps in. What does he do? The Bible says he seals us. 
He marks you as one of His own. Let me summarize what that whole thing means. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all working together in perfect unity and community. And do you know what they're working on? They're working on saving your soul. That's awesome. What's the message of the Trinity? We learned it last week. It's the message of love. That God the Father loves you. That God the Son loves you. That God the Spirit loves you. That you are the object of God's complete and total unbridled affection. So we listen to all of that. That's about four years of seminary boiled down to in about nine minutes, all right? And you hear all of that, and we ask the same question we did last week. So what? I mean, what's the big deal? Okay. Why is that supposed to change my life? Last week, we saw God the Father as an initiator. We're going to add another life-changing statement this week. It goes like this. The doctrine of the Trinity changes our lives because we get to witness the role of God the Son as Savior. One of my favorite Bible stories happens at the end of Luke chapter 2. Jesus is about 12 years old and his parents decide to take a field trip. They go on a family vacation. They're going to the temple to celebrate one of the festivals and the earthly parents of Jesus lose God the Son. Can you imagine answering to God the Father about that one? Yeah, we had your kid here a minute ago, but now suddenly he's gone, all right? This story makes me feel so good as a parent. I have misplaced my kids at various times, so I feel better, all right? Mary and Joseph lose the Son of God for actually for three days. Now, in that culture, and I could unpack it, that actually is not that big of a deal because entire families would travel together. I think they just assumed they were hanging out with the uncles and the aunts and the cousins, They finally figure out that he's gone. And when they locate him, 12-year-old Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's taking a group of theological eggheads to school. And he's teaching them. When Mary and Joseph finally find out, when they show up in the temple, right before they ground God for a month and take away his texting, okay? Right before that happens, Jesus says this to them. He says, Does it surprise you that I'm here and that I'm about my father's business? He's saying, I'm here for a purpose. I've got a mission. I'm here to give my life away because I'm going to make salvation possible for all of these people. In that moment, Jesus declares, I'm going to be the Savior. Your Savior, if you'll allow me to be. And we spend the rest of the Gospels looking at how Jesus lives as a Savior. Let me break down just some of these. We could preach on this for 20 years and never touch the surface. Let me break down just some of them. Jesus lives as a Savior because God the Son brought glory to His Father. Listen to Jesus praying in John chapter 17. It says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now listen to this Christ the King. Here's what the word of God says. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Jesus spent his whole life 
sending praise and glory in the direction of his Father. He did that by doing exactly what it was that God the Father called him to do every moment of every day. And I have to ask you this question. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus this past week, did you bring glory to the Father with everything that came into your brain? Did you bring glory to the Father by everything that that trickled across your lips? If any of you is saying yes, I think you need a reality check. I can't say that. I drove the guide 17 times last week. You don't think at some point I wished the guy in front of me dead? Seriously? Don't let the enemy push your shame button. Just do a gut check. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, to be about your father's business means everything you're going to do, say, and think should bring glory to God the Father all the time. How else did he live as a savior? Secondly, God the Son accomplished the mission of his father. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came in seek to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came to find you. Last week we learned that the Father has been calling you, drawing you to Himself. That the Father loved us so much that He sent His Son in order to find you. Did you know this? God the Son became a man because of you. So that He could reach you. In being fully God and fully man, there's another point in your outline. That God the Son lived a sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. My friends, do we get that? He understands your weaknesses. He feels the pain that resides deep inside of your soul. He faced temptation and yet was able to overcome it. And I used to get in so much trouble in theology class back in college. I used to get in trouble because for hours in practical theology class with Dr. Swenson, the, the, all of us, we'd get together and we would spend hours unpacking the fact that if God was fully man and yet fully God, did he have the capacity to sin or not? And we spent hours arguing about that and debating it, going back and forth. And at some point, I would get in huge trouble because when my brain was just ready to explode, I would blurt out and I would say, Who cares if he could have? The truth is, he didn't. He was perfect. I don't care if he had the capacity to sin. I have the capacity to sin. This is the cool thing about God the Son. He faced everything that I faced every day, and yet he remained perfectly pure. Wow. You know, the truth is, he was perfect because he had to be perfect. He had to be perfect because the next blank in your outline says that God the Son became my perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 7 says this, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. If you've been around church for a while, you're going you're gonna to hear this and recognize it. My prayer is today that you'll get it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
Sin had left a crimson stain. But he washed it white as snow. Some of you may question the symbol behind me. I've got a question for you. Have you ever questioned the symbol that you hang around your neck? Do you know what that cross actually is? Do you know that that's the symbol of a Roman torture stick? Do you realize that thousands of people died on those, but that Jesus was the only one who willingly and willfully allowed himself to be nailed to that cross just so he could save your soul? Do you understand the symbol that you wear? Do you understand that that while he was suffering through excruciating pain and brutal humiliation, do you understand that he was thinking about you? Do I understand he was thinking about me? You know, while Jesus was being crucified for my sin, for your sin, here's another amazing part of our Savior, that God the Son offered personal forgiveness. Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Can I put that modern for you? They're clueless, Dad. Forgive them. The Son was sent by the Father. He was sent to die and to pay a price we couldn't pay. And in the middle of the pain, the Son, because He loves us, asked the Father to forgive. So many people would just love, it would be so much more convenient if God the Son would just stay on the cross. Some people actually believe He belongs there. And it would be so much easier for them to to be able to dismiss this itinerant Jewish rabbi and just make Him leave us all alone if He stayed on the cross. But I'm going to declare to you today, He did not stay on the cross. We're getting ready to walk into Easter. We're going to celebrate on Palm Sunday. My prayer is that you will come together during the week and walk through the shadows of the cross, that you'll understand the pain that he went through, that you'll come here on Good Friday and celebrate communion. Because if you'll do the first part of the week, that'll allow you to come here on Easter weekend and to be able to join with a course of God's people saying, he lives, we win, Jesus is alive. That is the goal of Easter for each and every one of us. People would love it if he just died and went away. He didn't. Why do you think it looks like I'm going to pop a gasket right now? It's because my Savior is alive. That's worth popping a gasket over. Here's the last one. After knowing that he rose again and beat death, we need to know that God the Son will return. I'm going to read to you Revelation chapter 19. My encouragement to you is to just sit back and listen to this biblical description of what the Savior is going to look like when He comes back to get us. Are you ready? And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. And he's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword for which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. 
King of kings and Lord of lords. If you understand the Trinity, when you read that section of Scripture, you come to one conclusion. At the end of time, when it's all said and done, you want to be with that guy. You want to hang out with that guy. You want to be a part of that parade right there. Because that's what it's going to be all about. The Son of the Trinity coming back in power and majesty. And I have to ask you the question this morning. Do you know him? Not do you know about him. So many people know about Jesus. Do you know God the Son? In John 14, 23, Jesus says this. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Trinity can be confusing. Because as you read the interactions between Jesus and his Father, it gets a little sketchy sometimes because you kind of wonder to yourself, but, but it looks like... It looks like Jesus is submitting. How can he be equal and submit at the same time? When he's talking with God, the Father in the garden, how, how can that work together? My friends, you need to understand something. We have a picture of submission, and when you take it outside of the Trinity, it stops working. Our picture of submission is with somebody with their arm twisted behind their back. You're going to do what I told you to do. That's not what submission looks like when you're in perfect community and unity. Let me show you what it looks like as best I can. Going off camera, you're going to have to stick with me if you can. Jordan, I need your help, buddy. Jordan's my friend, so you trust me just a little bit. Submission inside of the Trinity doesn't look like this. Submission inside of the Trinity looks like this. You get that? Thanks, bud. Do you understand that that is the message of the Trinity? It's love. Okay, I'm going to stick this in there whether we have time or not. Last week was a hard week at Christ the King. We saw a lot of pain people. We prayed for people who were struggling financially in one of our prayer times and some of the stories just stopped me in the tracks. We did two funerals this week at the same time in the same building. And I watched our pastoral team and our support team just love the people of God here by serving them. I'm an introvert. I can only do so much people in pain before I just get ready to snap Thursday afternoon, my assistant Diane said, okay, Grant, here's the deal. You've got three meetings, back to back to back, three different people, and then you can go home. Okay. The God of the Trinity knew exactly what I needed Thursday. I'd never met John before Thursday. This kind-hearted, beautiful-souled man came into my office, and we pre-planned his funeral. Doctors say John doesn't have much time. That's okay because John knows Dr. Jesus. And he's perfectly at rest with God's timing. At the end of our time together, 
this beautiful man got down on one knee in my office and we anointed him with oil and prayed that God would touch him and the Holy Spirit just came into that moment and wrapped up his son John and it was just peaceful. It should not be peaceful when you're talking about your own funeral, but it was. I walked John down the hallway. I got in my car. I drove down the street and I had coffee with my friend Jack. Jack is a walking, talking picture of the transformation that happens when Jesus steps in. He's a miracle. And I just sat there for an hour, completely dumbfounded, listening to his story. I'm like, how in the world? Wow. And as we sat there, this name kept coming up. Jesus, 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 Jesus. We finished our time together. I didn't think it could get any better than that. I went and hung out with a, a young pastor who's trying to figure out what he should preach on to start a church. <laughs> preach the Trinity. Do you know what he needs right now? He needs a father. We'll just walk alongside and say, come here, son. I'll tell you what to say. The God of the Trinity, one God, three persons, each working together on the same mission to transform Whatcom County, one human being at a time. Next week, we're going to do the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me this morning? God, thank you for these moments. God, I pray for those in this room right now who have heard all of the Trinity stuff before. My prayer is that their response would simply be, wow, wow. But God, I can't let this moment slip by talking about Jesus for the morning and not give people an opportunity to know Him. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody's looking around. Nobody's moving around. God the Father would like to ask you a question today. Do you know God the Son? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you asked Him to forgive you for your sin? Have you received the gift of eternal life? Do you know Him as Savior and Lord? If you don't, my prayer is that you'll pray a simple prayer of faith right now. Maybe as simple as, God, help me. God, save me. God, forgive me. God, restore me. God, keep me. It's a simple prayer, but it really, it really just sums up everything that we need in a Savior. And I already know God's answer. I will heal you. I will forgive you. I will restore you. Trust in me. Give, my, give your heart to me right now. 
As I was praying that prayer, if, if that reflected what's happening in your heart right now, if you want to know Jesus, God the Son, I would never do anything to embarrass you, but if that prayer reflected what's happening in your heart right now, I'd love to pray for you this week. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to embarrass you. Would you just slip your hand up in the air? If that was yours, God bless you, and God bless you, and God bless the three of you right there. And God bless you. And God bless you right up in the corner. I see your hand over there. God bless you. And God bless you in the center section in the back. God bless you, young man. I see your hand. God, thank you for these who've seen their need of a Savior today. God, I pray that they would know that you're right there with them, right now, in this moment, sitting there with them welcoming them home, setting them free. God, I pray that they would know you and the power of your resurrection. God, thank you for God the Son. Thank you for a Savior. We give you all the praise and all of the glory for the work that you have done and are doing and will do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.